cancer is common and other cancer myths. You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and joining me today is Dr. Levi Garraway. He's Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School, and he's with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. He's also a recent recipient of the NIH Director's New Innovator Award. Dr. Garraway comes to us today from his office in Boston, and we're going to be talking about commonly held cancer myths. Levi, thanks for uh, taking some time to be with us today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Maybe before we get to some of these cancer myths and some of your research, maybe you could share with us a little bit about your background, your medical background, and how you got into the business. Well, I have trained at Harvard Medical School and done residency and fellowship, Mass General Hospital and Dana-Farber. When I was training, though, I didn't expect to be doing cancer research. Actually, I thought I would be doing infectious disease, and I did PhD work in an infectious disease lab. But a variety of reasons got me steered towards cancer, one of which was that my father developed prostate cancer while I was in graduate school. So that got me thinking a lot about cancer and got me very dissatisfied about the state of cancer treatment and biological understanding. So that took me down a path which has been very fruitful and exciting, and hopefully it will stay that way. You spoke recently in uh, Zurich about some cancer myths, and I found these to be interesting, and I think our audience will as well. Let's talk about some of these commonly held myths. One of them, I think most of us believe that cancer is common. You say that's not the whole story. Well, you know, it's kind of nice when you're talking to medical colleagues who may not spend a lot of time in the laboratory rather than starting with a picture of a gel or something, start with something that will get their attention. So at the meeting in Zurich, I put the slide up, cancer myth number one, cancer is common, and immediately the room was quiet. So I knew I had them. But of course, the point of that was to say that obviously at a patient level, cancer is a very common disease. But when one thinks about it from the level of the cancer cell, it's a little bit different. And the example that is nice to give is the example of acute myelogenous leukemia, because the incidence is approximately maybe two to 3,000 new cases annually in the U.S. But when you think about cancer as starting from a single cell, and in the case of leukemia, that would have been a single transformed cell from the bone marrow, and you do a series of back-of-the-envelope calculations, you know, estimates, well, how many bone marrow cells are there in the body? How often do they turn over? How many people are in the United States? So how many bone marrow cells does that end up being? You can say roughly, you know, there's maybe one cancer cell that emerges out of every 100 quadrillion normal bone marrow cells. So when you think about that, that's an astonishingly small number. And so that makes you realize, well, at a molecular level, cancer is not common. It's actually extremely rare. And that kind of reframes the question from a scientific standpoint. Yeah, and gets people listening to you when you talk about the molecular level as well. (laughs) Well, here's another thing we think we all know, but apparently maybe not. I think all of us grew up uh, understanding in in the medical business that cancer cells grow more rapidly than normal cells, and that's what they are, and that's what they do. Is that the case? Well, I think the reason why we can state that that is a myth is that it's the use of the term rapidly. Now, certainly there are some cancers where the cancer cells grow more rapidly than the normal cellular counterparts, but maybe the better term to use is that they grow inappropriately. They're growing when they're not supposed to be. They're ignoring the surrounding signals that tell them you're not supposed to grow, and they act like they're being told to grow all the time. And so the issue is not so much being a more rapid growth, but being that they're growing when everything tells them that they shouldn't be. So it's a little more than meets the eye there. Sure. 
Let's talk a little bit about cancer-causing oncogenes. That's kind of been a big topic of late. Are there misunderstandings about those as well? I think one of the surprising things about oncogenes, a lot of the classic studies that were done by wonderful scientists, Bob Weinberg and many others, showed that you could actually take a gene that had a particular mutation that now turned it on and put it into cells that weren't cancer cells and get a cell that behaved very much like a cancer cell and actually was a cancer cell. What it turns out is that those cells in, in those early experiments, those cells weren't normal cells. They were immortal, for example. Most normal cells don't grow forever. In the right. lab, they'll stop growing. So that was one big difference. Mm-hmm. It turns out when you take an oncogene and put it into a truly normal cell mm-hmm. that hasn't had any additional changes, usually what happens is the cell doesn't become a cancer cell. It actually will arrest or even die. Well, that is a surprise. It's a surprise, but it also is one of these things that made us realize a lot about what a cancer cell truly is. Let's go on with that a little bit. So what is a cancer cell? So I think what that told us, and sort of synthesizing several lines of evidence, is that there's not going to be just one change that happens that causes a normal cell to become a cancer cell. There are a series of changes, and it's hard to know exactly how many changes are required. Estimates range from 5 to 10, but it is a multi-step process. So by the time you get a cancer cell, that cell is actually quite deranged compared to what its normal ancestor was. Ah. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host, and I'm speaking with Dr. Levi Garraway, and we're discussing some commonly held cancer myths. So, Levi, let's talk a little bit about this multi-step phenomenon. I think many of us labor under the misimpression you've got a cancer cell, there's a change, either genetic or from the outside, and now it's something that there's no going back. But you're implying that it's a multi-step path. How did you come or how did we come to know that? And what does that mean for us clinically? Sure. So many of us in the cancer field stand on the shoulders of giants. And so there was some seminal work done by Robert Weinberg at MIT together with, at that time, one of his postdoctoral fellows named William Hahn. And they did some very elegant experiments, which asked the question, how do we turn a completely normal cell into a cancer cell? And what they found was you had to do a whole series of things. Now, you could be smart about what pathways you turned on or off, but you actually had to do several steps before you got a truly cancerous outcome from that. So really, those studies firmly established that there is going to be some minimum number of events, but it is much more than one that will cause a cell to display the full cancerous properties. Hmm. A lot of your recent work has been in melanoma. Is that the case with uh, melanoma as well? It certainly seems to be. So some analogous experiments have been done specifically in melanoma. In fact, we published together with uh, colleague David Fisher, Hans Vidland, and others sort of showing this. And it, it looks like this is going to be a unifying property of most common cancers, that there were several steps that have occurred to lead to cancer and still more that occur to make those cancers metastasize and cause new blood vessels to form, etc. Is it fair as we think about that, is it fair to say that some or many of those steps might be amenable to intervention from a clinical point of view? Well, certainly one of the exciting aspects of developing new cancer therapies over the past decade or two has been the recognition that it's not a lost cause because, as you're saying, you could have thought, well, there's so many changes. How are we possibly going to be smart about targeting cancer? And in fact, it turns out that if you understand what some of these key changes are, and if those changes happen to be amenable to the design of a targeted drug, you can 
sometimes get dramatic, spectacular responses. So this understanding, although there are many steps, but being rational and smart about what the biology was that was perturbed and being able to target that can, in fact, lead to dramatic responses. Let me just take that a step further. When we talk about the kinds of chemotherapy that we're using nowadays, do we know, for the most part, what step it's acting at, or do we know whether it's selectively killing fast-growing cells, or is it all the same? So this is another area where I like to pose a cancer myth, which is that we always tell patients that conventional chemotherapy works by selectively killing dividing cells. I know. I've told them that. <laughs> sure. And I've told them that too. And, you know, the reality is always is, is much more complicated. And conventional chemotherapeutic drugs have diverse mechanisms of action. And we may not even know what many of those mechanisms are. But a final common pathway by which chemotherapy kills cells is by inducing a process called programmed cell death or apoptosis. So that's the final mechanism by which many of these cancers will die. But the ability to evade programmed cell death or to evade apoptosis is another hallmark of cancer in the first place. So one of the models for why we so often fail to cure or even get a response in advanced cancers using conventional chemotherapy is because the mechanisms to evade programmed cell death are hardwired into the genesis of the cancer in the first place. Ah. Well, let's talk some more about cancer therapy. When we have patients with a specific kind of cancer, an anatomically located cancer, it seems our system has been set up to treat them anatomically so that, as you spoke in your talk, patients with colon cancer go to the GI clinic, those with lung cancer go to the thoracic clinic, et cetera. But you imply that the genetic determinants of the disease don't necessarily respect those boundaries. Is that fair to say? That is fair. Now, certainly, I think it's true that the types of genetic changes that occur in cancers are influenced by the anatomic origins or the cellular origins. So lung adenocarcinomas tend to have certain genetic alterations which are prevalent, and those may be very different than what are seen in melanoma or in prostate cancer or something like this. So there certainly is an effect on the anatomy in terms of what biology is elaborated. But I think the point is that at the end of the day, cancer can be thought of as a disease of the genome. There have been derangements, mutations, various different alterations in the genome of cancer cells that now cause them to behave like cancer cells. And so the types of genetic alterations that occur are likely to be the trump card in terms of why the cell is a, is a cancer cell. And although anatomy can influence the spectrum of those alterations, it's certainly not definitive in terms of how to treat cancers. One imagines that really knowing these genetic alterations and targeting those, irrespective of the anatomic origins of the cancer, is a path that would be fruitful in mm -hmm. terms of getting durable responses or more powerful effects of, of therapy. So if we knew better some of those molecular alterations, it might be that a drug that works on one anatomic cancer might work as well or might work effectively in another cancer that had the same or similar molecular alterations. That's right. And it may lead us to classify, to think differently about how we classify cancer. We might not say, oh, yeah, this is a breast cancer, or we might say, oh, no, this is a cancer with a PI3 kinase mutation, and we're going to treat that cancer a certain way. To put this in perspective, how many such alterations do we know about, and do we know much about each of them? Well, the number of alterations that have been described as having occurred in cancer is increasing dramatically. I mean, I think one could easily get into the thousands of, if we were to catalog the different alterations in different cancer genes. Now, part of the problem is that you can say, okay, here's an alteration that occurred in a cancer and it wasn't in the normal cell, 
in that individual. But we don't know if that alteration caused the cancer. It just may have been associated with global genomic derangements that happen to cancer. So one of the big challenges is to figure out what are the driver alterations, the, the critical causal alterations, versus the ones that just kind of came along for the ride, but they're not actually participating in the biology of the disease. So associated with, but not necessarily uh, causative. Exactly. Yeah. Sounds like a challenge. Sounds like you've got your hands full. I want to thank Dr. Levi Garraway, who's been our guest. We've been talking about commonly held cancer myths. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com. Register with promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Prabhat Shah, Director for the Center for Global Health Research at the University of Toronto. You are listening to ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals.